Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, what's going on, Spice Lords? This is Sean Evans, and welcome back to another edition of our classic interview series, where we open up the vaults of Hot Ones history and bring you some of our best hot sauce-fueled interviews in their full, uncut glory. This week, we celebrate John Mayer. You dream of getting a chance to interview people who don't do a ton of press. The way he deconstructs pop music and unpackages celebrity culture is fascinating. Plus, he played the uke. So here it is. Let's touch uke's John Mayer in his full, uncut glory. Enjoy, Spice Lords. Hey, what's going on, everybody? For First We Feast, I'm Sean Evans. It's the show with hot questions and even hotter wings. And today we close out season five with John Mayer. He's a platinum-selling singer-songwriter with seven Grammy Awards on the mantle, and you can catch him on the Dead & Company summer tour coming to a city near you. John, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. How are you with spicy food? I like spicy food. Yeah, I can can take it. I have a good palate. I like, you know, I used to dip tobacco and... I, like, I used to have single malt scotch. Wow. So I, I think I have the palate for this. So you're confident going in. Yes, which is always a recipe for disaster. <laughs> All right, so this right. first one is the Humble House. I like it. Dark. It's like a mole almost. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Out of San Antonio. Mm-hmm. Certain barbecue quality to it. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of lore surrounding the John Mayer songwriting process, and you've been very generous about pulling back the curtain on that, whether that's to the Berkeley College of Music or to your fans on Twitter. How do you intellectualize the difference between your best songs and your most famous songs? Because it seems to be two distinct buckets to you. Uh, yeah. The things that make songs the most successful are some of the hardest things to achieve in performance. So, like, I've written songs that I really wanted to become hits so I could not have to warm up so much when I sang them and just, like, roll into a show and be like, who says I can't get stoned? You know, and it's always, me and all my friends! So it's like the ones that are pitched higher tend to reach people more. And that's me like waking up at five in the morning doing warm-ups and stuff to try to hit it. So then also like I have this relationship with complexity and simplicity where like the more simple I think it is, the more reasonable it is for other people. And the more complex it is for me, the more fun I have with it. And so I guess it is a little bit of like a give and take with the audience where I'm like, this 120 chord monster is for me this four chord thing is for the world. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I would like to see the ones I like the most become the biggest. That would be fun. 
We'll piggybacking off that for just a little bit. During a 2007 column that you wrote for Esquire, you wrote about the 6-4-1-5 chord progression being a way to hack or mm-hmm. manufacture a hit. And I'm wondering from a music theory perspective, do you see any similar trends in 2018? Yes, there's a 1-4 to four happening right now. Like, it's a 1-4 thing happening a lot. What else am I hearing? Uh, that's probably the most primal, enjoyable chord change is like a G to a C. There's a reason that people pick up a guitar and go G to C. So I'm hearing a lot of that. And then like, what else is happening? Those things still work. Like that whole Camila Cabello record is like a love letter to like writing pop songs with these great chord changes and stuff. And so, you know, I guess I could hear it in my head. Minor two. Four. They're all like, there's only like four or five lights to hit, you know? And then can you give me a band that people make fun of on the internet that you think deserves a lot more respect from a songwriting perspective? That's a great question. And whoever that band is, they deserve that I think about it a little longer (laughs) to come up with who... Oh, that's really interesting. Well, I mean, the question, I guess, is like, who's getting ripped on? I mean, Nickelback is not as bad as the punishment they get. Like, people ripping on Nickelback is like when your mom used to yell at your dad, like, but too much. And you were like, I want to see him, like, get called out, but this is getting ridiculous. So it's like, you know, I'd like to come in and equalize the Nickelback thing a little bit. It's like... They're nice boys making rock and roll music at the end of the day. Let them live. Let them live. Well, who do you think? Will you, will you pitch me a couple ideas? Well, I thought that Nickelback was a good one. And then I think it's a heavy as the head that wears the crown situation yeah. where whoever kind of ends up on oh, top. Oh, Sheeran right now is getting. So Ed Sheeran, here's what happens, man. You go in a room, you try your best to write songs. And they come out really nice. They come out really good. And then what happens is they get to a point of success where the public feels like a market correction is due. Right. So and it's, it's not the job of an artist to reason with the public to listen to something less so it's not as big a hit because they don't want to offend anybody with how much more successful it is than it might be empirically due, right? Like, Ed Sheeran is the official soundtrack to every Uber ride I've had in the last <laughs> year, you know? And that's not his fault. That's like the product working it's not his fault that it's living in all these corners of the universe I I don't know that people differentiate that that's just like your body is a wonderland for me just a guy going in a room going like here's something that might work you know I think we get tied to our songs a little bit more than we might deserve they're just these dumb little things that hopefully they grow up to be important and self-sufficient sometimes you know, they, they, they become sort of a yuppie bullshit kind of character where it, like, has too much venture capital money and it's not as bright as the income it's made, you know? Right, but no artist is ever looking at that as the end game, so you shouldn't hold that against them, you know? No. Don't hold the ubiquitousness of an artist's song against the artist. He only wrote it once. He or she only wrote the tune one time. It'd be one thing if it's like... You know, the, the repetition of writing the thing over and over again. But hey, man, the, the product is working. Well said, John. You ready to move on? Absolutely. So this next one is Louisiana. It's a classic. Again, 
I'm giving ample time for a crescendo to take place. I'm not even sure I'm done with the first one. I'm not sure the first one's not done. Hanging out with it, letting mm-hmm. it marinate, letting it sit. Very leery. <laughs> you ask very good questions. So outside of making music, you've worn a lot of hats in your career, and mm-hmm. I'm wondering of the following, which held the most weight for you? Columnist for Esquire, aspiring stand-up comedian, guest host of The Late Late Show. Aspiring stand-up comedian. I get real bouts of like intrigue with things. Like, I, wanna, I see things and I want to try them and I want to do them. The hardest thing to probably do that's not athletic is getting up on a stage and doing stand-up comedy. Even harder than that is having people already have an idea of who you are. So I was a really like a collision course thing for me. For a long time, even I was confused as to what I was doing. But my one rule is like, follow your heart, be passionate, be curious, and like, I just have this thing where if I see someone on a horse and then they get off the horse and the horse is just like standing there, I'm like, I wanna get on the horse, you know? And the hard thing for me was like, at the time I was going through this like thing where everybody was looking at me like a cat or a Lothario, womanizer, you know, and ascending orders of like hurt feelings to hear, you know. And I ended up kind of getting off stage going, it's too hard to even fail. Like I'm not even allowed to fail the way that a stand-up should fail because I'm willing to go through the failure, you know. Mm-hmm. And then like as time went on, something happened in my brain where I became more of a person instead of just a ball of ideas and things to say. And when I started to develop like a voice as a human being, not just a songwriter, I knew that it was okay to sort of start being outspoken again. And then it just so happened that I was given these opportunities like Late Late Show where I could use then. I realized that, use all parts of the buffalo wing, I say, (laughs) you know? And I was able to draw on those few times that I had done stand-up and had gotten sick to my stomach the next day when page six was like, John Mayer went on stage and said this, that, that, and that on stage at the Comedy Cellar. I went, oh, I'm using this now because I'm walking out into an, onto an X on the floor and three cameras, I'm going, welcome to blah, 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 which had I not done stand-up, I would have gone, welcome to blah, 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 blah. and it taught me Rhythm. how to do that, you know. So I went, okay, it's not, it's not the demon I thought it was. And then working with Dave Chappelle on this tour we have called Controlled Danger, that's when I realized I am a comic in more of a passive way, so I can't really work front and center but I can definitely be someone to bounce the ball back a little faster than it came to me. And then Dave is interesting because he kind of has a foot in both worlds too. You know, as much as he's a comedy guy, he'll dabble in the music. And then same with you, as much as you're a music guy, he'll dabble in the comedy. When you guys have conversations, what sorts of music questions does he ask you? What sorts of comedy questions do you ask him? I don't know that we ask questions, but I think we're just both curious about the other person's mind. The more the evening goes on, depending maybe how much I've taken the vape out of my pocket or something. <laughs> it becomes more of like a, like I'm proud of my conversations with him like early in the evening. And as the evening goes on, it's just like, let's try to make Dave Chappelle laugh. And I just know that he's had enough of that. Probably people coming up to him trying to get, because there is this feeling if you get Chappelle to laugh, you've hit the bell in the carnival game. Right. You've made it go ding and you're like He-Man, you know. But I think we just both have a rhythm of taking an idea, trying to get into it, swim inside of it, hover inside of it so it doesn't leave. It's almost like lucid dreaming, you know? You, you, you just want to stay in the idea and get as much as you can out of it and then move on. It's like jamming, really. I mean, I've seen him be on stage before for four hours straight without an instrument, and he's not singing, but he's jamming. 
you know. I, I don't quite understand how it works, but it happens, and everyone, it doesn't look out of place, you know. He's, he, in some ways, is more musical than a lot of musicians out in the world now, because musicians are these closed loops, right? Like, they write their record, they go and they do it, and they're not really collaborating as much as we used to as musicians. Chappelle and another person on stage, it's like you know every song in the book together because you're just thinking together. It's not, it's not you know, constrained by anything. Interesting way of putting it. And then even in your main line of work, you know, you've had some interesting atypical gigs. Which was more surreal for you, performing mm-hmm. at Michael Jackson's memorial service or shredding on stage at Madison Square Garden with Jay-Z? Uh, it was definitely more surreal to play Michael Jackson's funeral service at Staples Center and the casket was right down front of the stage. That was one of those times where you're literally woozy. You know, there's this like, when film starts to drift, it was very fight clubby, you know, with the, the, the gate that starts to do that, you know. And I remember I did that whole thing without my in-ears in. I, because I was coming from the audience, I had just forgotten to do my pre-stage warm-up thing where I'd get nervous and i do it. And I got up on stage and started playing and went, oh, I can't hear anything. Like, I don't have my in-ears in. And I played, and I, just, I was like, do your best. And then it was really interesting to go from my own interpretation of what I thought it was, which was not very good, to understanding that it meant a lot to people. It was the only time in my life Twitter like, was a pick-me-up. <laughs> you know? There are a few times in my life where something that I've done crystallized to the point where you could walk down the street and a crossing guard would say, you know, great job. You That's know? nice to hear. Yeah. And then one more for you before we move on. You know, you once tweeted about having the idea for a Jay-Z concept album in your head yes. for years. What's the status of that? Is that ever something you oh, still no, think man. about? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm a nervy bastard, and I have ideas for other people all the time. I don't have boundaries when it comes to that. And I've, I've, I've rubbed a couple people the wrong way by just assuming that the idea superhighway is just, like, open, you know? And, and now, the people who love that, it's great. We're friends forever. The people who, some people find that condescending, and I understand that. So, yeah, I just think it'd be fun to hear Jay in, like, a psychedelic, cream Hendrix, Pink Floyd hip-hop. I want to hear Jay-Z trip. You know what I mean? <laughs> I feel you. I do yeah. too, John. Yeah. So this next one is the Bronx oh. Green Market sauce. Okay. What's the pepper here? That's a jalapeno. So I'd be remiss not to talk about your passion for footwear. There are some mm-hmm. Instagram accounts that are just solely devoted to the shoes that you're wearing. And then in a 2010 interview with AP, you said, my biggest dream, forget Grammys, I want to be able to design an Air Max. Mm-hmm. Why, in your opinion, is the Jordan 5 a perfect sneaker? Well, I think it's like historic for me. And it was like a car. You know, that was more than a shoe. That was like a, that was a, a dwelling, you know. We'd wear it to school. I'd put it on the table and I would take a bowl and I'd put water and dish soap in it and I would take a toothbrush and I would just, I remember the sort of texture of that leather and these little tiny micro dots in them, you know, and just like working over those micro dots and stuff and just trying to keep it clean because that was like my car. I might as well have been washing a car, you know. <laughs> So I had the originals. I don't know how cool that makes me because I don't have them anymore, but I had those, all those originals. It was the black one with the silver tongue. I yep. think I had the white with the red. And then, but my favorite is like the grape green. Getting know. funky with the colors. You like yeah, that's my funky with the colors. One, yeah. Do you have a favorite shoe to wear on stage? Prestos. What you're wearing today, I think. Yeah, I'm wearing the Akron and Prestos with the matching Volt socks. 
Funky um, colors. Yeah. The Akron Presto, not only on a design, like on an aesthetic level in terms of colors, like Arelson, who designs for Acronym, just like made maybe the best silhouette of a sneaker in a really, really long time. I feel like certain sneakers outlast their life cycle in terms of being hip, and you just can always wear them. And then, you know, people who are really into polo, they'll have these low-head meetups where maybe they'll trade or they'll show off their grails. Mm-hmm. Are there any similar meetups for Visvim heads? That's a good question. There's not. I wish there was. I'd like to, I'd actually legitimately like to build it. I think that I'm very good at calling things, like, maybe too early before they happen. Like, if I could just pull up a little closer to real time, I'd, I'd do a little better. I want to see a trading post, an American sort of male-based trading post for streetwear, where you walk in and you're like, here's this stuff. And, and the people who run it are super knowledgeable and can say, like, oh, that's a 2008 Visvim G-Line duck camo fishtail parka. I'll give you 600 for that because I want to educate people that that's worth something. You know, like, someone has to make the market. And I'm not really talking about, like, money. I'm talking about importance. Right. You know, like, right now, you can go to Grailed, and there's, like, these beautiful leather jackets that Visvim makes. And they're, like, classics to me. And they're, like, two grand. You know, it's like, they shouldn't be two grand. But there's not anybody to really, like, educate and build a scholarship around it. I'm ex- I would be very excited if there was a store like on La Brea or something, and it was a second-time-around store, but cared about it maybe more than anyone else did. I think that would be really cool. Who do you think has a better Visvim collection? Me. You? Or have you seen that uh, Instagram style dad, Dennis Bates? Yes. I've seen Instagram style dad. I actually turned... Noah from GQ on to Instagram style dad. Really? I don't know, remember where I found him. Because, like, I'll look up hashtags for things. Like, I'll go hashtag hunting and stuff, you know. And this guy is, like, super literal. Like, he's really literal. And, I, like, we live in this world where, like, we don't make fun of people anymore. We just go, like, you do you. Right. And he's, like, a major you do you guy. Like, when you <laughs> look at it, you you you're like, that is a choice. Like, Pendleton pattern. I look at those photos and I go... I'm not quite sure about that, to say the least. He's also, like, super into Wrangler jeans. Yeah. So he's, like, his denim game is, like, just, like, Walmart. Like, but the shoe stuff... It's is, dad it's through dad. the ceiling. I look at that and I go, like, I'm not sure if I'm into that. But if that guy had a really hot song, and it was, like, a great song, I'd be, like, that's the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> like, he's, like, he's, like, one trap hit away from from that being the most amazing outfit. But I think it's just a little out of context. There you go. Because he's like in front of his fireplace. And then you popularize the Costco $17 Kirkland Tell 11s. The Tell the world. For the Kirk boys out there, yep. do you have any tips on how to rock that sneaker? Yes. Take the memory phone sole out of that and put it in some other shoes. <laughs> that, they, they're, they're like the only athletic shoe that should come with a warning not to engage in athletic activities in them. They are an athletic shoe-shaped slipper. Mm. In fact, the only place they're good to wear them necessarily is like the hardwood floors of Costco. Yeah, that's maybe the only safe place to wear them. Otherwise, an injury liability waiting to happen. Yes. Well, you're just gonna you're gonna roll an ankle. You ready to move on? Uh, absolutely. So this next one is Hot Ones Fiery Chipotle, mm-hmm. in-house brand. So in 2013, you bought a ranch in Montana in part to recover from major vocal surgery mm-hmm. and in part to take some time away from the spotlight yep. during this sort of media self-sabotage mm-hmm. phase. Mm-hmm. How were you embraced by the locals? Was it an open arms greeting or were they a little bit resentful of another famous Hollywood dude seeking refuge right. in big right. sky country? Right. I, 
um, moved out in 2011. And I just sort of realized that the best thing for me to do when I got out there was to say yes to every request for maybe two years. My rule was yes to everything for two years. Because I, I knew going into it that people have such a preconceived notion about me. I'm just a lot, you know? And, and I'm, I'm starting to understand that as I get older, I go, I get it. But, yeah, I have to work so hard to overtake those notions sometimes. And it was like, yeah, people look at me and they're just so ready to go, Ugh. And so I was like, yes to everything for two years. And that actually worked. And it wasn't hard to say. You just say yes to a photo when you're in a supermarket and you're wearing sweatpants. You just go, yeah. And that, I think, uh, everyone sort of bonded over that. And, and maybe sort of like ideally what you want is then when someone else comes up to ask for a photo now, four other people go, leave them alone. You know what I mean? Because they got their photos. <laughs> <laughs> you know? do, uh, did you do anything super Montana-like when you got out there? Did you buy a big truck? Did you build a doomsday bunker? Did you do anything no, super I didn't, Montana? I, so I, uh, along those lines, I knew that all eyes would be on me in terms of what equipment I had for things. And what, so, I, so I mean, I could fly fish off my back deck, but I won't because I won't fly fish until I'm ready to go all the way into it. Because I'm the dude who will have the titanium rod and reel and get it stuck in a tree and people will be like, you're an, like, you're an idiot. So I'm waiting until I'm ready to put all of my faith and effort and time into it so that like, I really have it down. And I'm, I'm willing with fly fishing because it's like a religion out there. Do you ever get a chance to visit the testicle festival? How did you know? No, I, I, <laughs> that's the name of my group chat. <laughs> Oh my goodness! <laughs> what no, what is the Tesla club? I it's in um, it's in Clinton. Mm-hmm. What hotel room? <laughs> <laughs> and then they have like you know like every kind of testicle. Ooh, testicle festival it. is mm-hmm. two thousand nine hundred forty-four feet away. Yeah, oh, fantastic! I might Let's go, them. everybody. Hop yeah. in the van. Yeah. Did you ever get a chance to visit Mackenzie River Pizza? No. How about a huckleberry pie? Do you ever yes. have a huckleberry pie? Yes, had a huckleberry pie. Homemade huckleberry pie. You can also get, I think, a huckleberry salad dressing as well. Wow. Yeah. Is there a regional food in Montana that you think more people should know about? Oh, elk, you elk. know? I mean, there's a little red state in me now, you know? I actually think it's, a, I think it's, a, it's good for a human being to understand both sides of that life. I mean, out in L.A., everything is very cut and dry on the binary of like we do that we don't do that but especially like when it comes to like gun ownership and stuff right but out there you have to understand like my friend jeremy will come over with a pile of elk that he gutted himself that day and he shot the elk and he brings the elk over and it's fantastic all right so this next one is the hamajang hamajang out of hawaii okay you know what i do like at home is ghost pepper really that's a Oh, that's kind of extreme. Yeah, but when you use a little bit of it, it's almost like this. It's like smoky mesquite. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's exactly what this yeah. is like. All right, John, well, we have a recurring segment on our show called Explain That Gram, where we do a deep dive on our guest's Instagram, pull interesting pictures that need more context. So I'll bust out the laptop, I'll show you the picture, and okay. then you just tell me the bigger story. Does that sound good? Absolutely. Why is Justin Bieber a melody wizard? Um, I've been in the studio with him before, and his ability to craft melodies, I've never seen anybody better. His ear is so good at singing melodies, writing them, write them on, on the spot. Lyrics are harder for everybody, you know, but him humming, him just like off, off the dome, fantastic. He's really, 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 really good. The way I feel about Justin is that he has this incredible gift 
in a world of a lot of reality distortion. And I care about them because when you're that gifted, the reality distortion around you is sort of seeking to crush that gift. Mm -hmm. And he's, you become a warrior, man. Like you become a warrior to try to figure it out and fight it out so that you can go on and make all these really, really important, great records. And he's made really great music. And I just look at it like, go, Justin, go. Like get, if you can get through the reality distortion experiment so that you can then be leveled out at 37,000 feet and just make the greatest music you're meant to make, like that's, that's important to me. Your relationship with Bob Saget, yes. is it more of a bromance or is it more of a father-son situation? How would you oh, characterize man. it? Uh, if I only have to circle the best answer, it's more father-son. Yeah, he's a, he's a remarkable human being. Uh, he's a remarkable human being. I, call, I say he's a blues man. He manages pain and humor in a way that I've never seen anybody do it. He's really, really remarkable. That is a, a Buddha's worth of love for people that he has. And he connects with people and he lets everybody know in his life that he loves them. And one more for you. Stage show with Dave Chappelle and Drake. So funny. Well, uh, well, Drake heard I was there. <laughs> uh, it was a thing we had going. Uh, Dave and I had these shows in between Christmas and New Year's last year. And Drake came up on stage. And, you know, it's like it's nothing he can't do. And his timing was great. And it was like this great podcast for a minute that nobody was able to record because their phones were locked up. And that's why it was, it was so Special. great. Yeah, he's really... He's really a mastermind. It's hard to explain. There's a man within a man within a man. It's like he's like rushing nesting dolls of talent, you know? Well, I can't wait to hear your ideas, John, for the Drake concept album when they start working through. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll figure something out. All right, this next one is the karma sauce, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So I once saw a video of you FaceTiming Hot Ones alum Shawn Mendes. Yes. And in it, you instantly bonded over how uncomfortable the Mercedes-Benz Viano is. Viano which is, is. A, what a lot of artists use when they're touring overseas, mm -hmm. how they get around. I'm wondering, do you think that there's a degree to which musicians innately understand other musicians in 100%. a way that no one else does? 100%. Um, number one, there's all these things that happen to you that only other musicians can understand. Just uh, observations in the world. Like when you see the sun come up and the sun is like, fuck you, get with the program. And, and your nose burns for breathing and your eyes burn from being open for so long. Like, and the depression and the sadness that kicks in. Only other musicians are people who travel in that way. I think it's different for musicians because then they have to go do that thing, which is a derivative of joy and connection. But if you're on the road and you woke up after a 20 minute sleep and you're your mouth is still minty because you literally brushed your teeth 20 minutes ago. You know, you get a phone call, you got to go and do an interview, and you're doing an interview with someone who's, like, interviewing you off of your Wikipedia page. And then you got to go through all this stuff. And, and the wings on, and whatnot? Yeah, on the wings. <laughs> and, uh, and then you end up going on stage. Like, that's, that's something only other musicians can understand. And we reach out to each other. We reach out to people when it's 4 in the morning and... and we haven't slept and we have to get up at five and now we're, we just feel lost or, or like the whole thing is rigged. Like, we rely on each other, you know? And, and I have tethered other people to earth and other people have tethered me to earth going, you're almost done, you're like, you become like mission control for those people, you know? And people are mission control for me. 
What's the difference when you tweet from, say, Montana or Wyoming mm -hmm. and then in L.A.? Do you have a different relationship with Twitter when you find yourself yeah. removed from the source of its obsessions? I got off Twitter on New Year's Eve. I, was, I'm, I haven't been on it. And there are times in my life where I just remember I'm not on it and I'm very happy because I see certain things going on in the world and I go, I just wanted to read about it once. <laughs> you know, I think Twitter, Twitter's biggest problem is a redundancy problem where, again, it's like we were talking before, where if a song gets played a lot of times, it's not the song's fault for getting overplayed. The song might have a lot of validity. And so the same thing with Twitter, where thought could have a lot of validity, but it, the problem is things burn out too fast. Like you're watching nomenclature get invented on a Tuesday and burnt on a Friday, you know? And it's just, it's just too hot a temperature in there for me. But when I did tweet in Montana, there was a lot more humanity. All right, John, you ready to move on? No. <laughs> so this next one is the Dawson sauce. Mm -hmm. There's a recurring storyline these days in hip-hop where older fans are dismayed by younger artists maybe not knowing about or not caring about legendary mm -hmm. MCs like Rakim or Tupac. Is there a corollary in the guitar music world? Oh, yeah, man. The guitar music world invented online fighting. In 1995 or six, two things went up on the internet. Porn and people arguing about the top five guitar players of all time. The thing about culture now where younger artists are getting taken to task for them talking about older artists is that you didn't used to have so much connection between a 50-year-old guy and a 20-year-old guy. If 20 years ago someone said, like, there's going to be this thing and, like, a 50-year-old guy is just going to, like, hear everything a 20-year-old has to say about things, you'd be like, where is this? This seems crazy to me, you know. So I think it's a it's a extension of never aging out of things. Like I'm 40 and I'm liking photos of 20-year-olds. I'm 40 and I have opinions about 19-year-olds. And that's not wrong anymore. So you don't age away from the thing. I would think in the past you just let kids talk. But everyone's listening now. If you could collaborate with any SoundCloud rapper, who would you collaborate I with? I like Lil Boom. I don't love some of his online tactics. They're a little, they're a little coarse for me. But in um, this sort of like, what, what would you call it? Like purposefully wonky rhythmic approach. There's it's not mumble rap. Elegantly disheveled. Just yeah, just taking it and going. What, what's a bar line? What's a who cares? And just going like fruit. I like a little boom. His samples are these really highly melodic things. And, he, and he's got this song called Kimono. And on a songwriting level, he says he's on page 50 on Pornhub looking for a video. And then he says, last year I got a starter coat for Christmas. And the thing about songwriting is I like taking two seemingly opposing ideas, putting them next to each other, and letting them sort of beat off one of another. I just, I don't know why. I, scrolling page 50 on Pornhub. You know, last year got a starter coat for Christmas. It's like, yeah, to tell us what's on your mind, man. All right, John. You ready to move on? Yes, I am. This next one is Mad Dog 357 with number nine plutonium. Okay, I'm sure in 2018 you can buy plutonium in any drugstore, but... Wherever you are right now, you're in the eye of the storm. Okay. You know what I mean? So it has a half-life. You're going to be better from here. Got it. How you feeling, John? Okay? I'm okay. 
So, John, you're a man of many talents, but I think right up there with the guitar playing is your ability to make observations about food. So, with that in mind, oh. we're going to dust off a Hot Ones classic. What we've done is we've pulled some of the most insightful, profound John Mayer tweets about food. But I have to ask you first things first. Why do Oreos make such a bad breakfast? Oreos make a very bad breakfast because they're not made to be in cereal form. You realize that there is respect due to people who make cookie-shaped cereal. I know it started with what I had, which is Oreos in a bowl. Leave it to the experts. Don't try to go make your own bowl of mini Oreos and milk. There are ingredients in each Oreo that don't really work en masse. And that's when I was like, I'm going to write a letter to Battle Creek, Michigan, to Kellogg's and say, I get it now. But it'll make you sick. I started doing Teddy Grahams in milk years ago. Mm. You know, remember Teddy Grahams? Love Teddy Grahams. And uh, I'm always curious, a little mischievous. I like, to, what's Teddy Grahams like in milk? They fall apart immediately. What is with your love for Justin's almond butter? Um, I went on a cleanse like four years ago, and I'm still sort of on it. Once you discover almond butter and shakes and stuff, it's like your source of fat. Did you receive any blowback from this tweet? Peanut M&Ms are plain. Plain M&Ms are sensational. Yes. Yeah, but I don't know if you know this, people like getting upset, and they love getting upset at things they know are just, like, fake Incredible Hulk gloves. And it was an opportunity to become upset with zero stakes. And I think um, it really split, it was a real divisive thing to say, because there are some real peanut M&M aficionados out there. And you gotta understand that, to my taste, a peanut M&M is not an M&M with a peanut in it. It's a peanut with a little bit of M&M around it. And I think that's what I want people to know. And I feel like when I heard myself say that, I changed a couple minds on that. You ever say something and this ball feels good coming out of your hands and you're like, this is a swish. <laughs> yeah, peanut M&Ms are not an M&M with a peanut in it. Let's get that straight. What's the key to making a great hamburger salad? And oh, what right. can you learn about yourself after eating one? I was just having this discussion with somebody the other night. I don't eat when I'm alone for fanciness. I eat for sustenance. And maybe I didn't have buns. Maybe that's what happens. I didn't have the buns. And I was just like, well, a salad with some onions, like some produce on it, and some bison meat, and then you put some ketchup and mustard on it, that's just a really deconstructed hamburger. And it was ultimately really, really good. It's just not self-respecting, you know? <laughs> like, I live you like a divorced dad. You don't want anyone walking in on you while you're eating something no. like that. No, I, I live like a divorced dad. Very Kramer versus Kramer in my food preparation. <laughs> Very sort of like, I don't know, it's a thing. I, you know, a lot of canned soup. I'm, I'm eating for the mass. I'm eating to get hunger over with. Not a foodie. Well, while we're on the topic of food, how has your rider evolved from your first tour to your current tour? Well, what with the internet and all, um, I feel like the world is ready to just shake a finger at riders, so... I, I live in relative rider squalor because I, I don't... You don't want to give anybody any ammunition. You don't want to give people ammunition. Mo most riders, if you're a musician and you read them back, you're like, I get that. The one thing that everybody needs to understand is that if somebody has on their rider furniture and, like, drapes, that is actually not a diva request. That's fully practical because they're in locker rooms. And if you do this every single day and you're in a locker room, and like, I don't care how long ago someone played a sport, and then they went in that room, that room smells like balls. Like, there's balls in that room. And sometimes, 
if you can't get the smell of balls out of a room, you can at least do some things to the other senses and take away the locker roomness of it. Yeah. And speak, just try to soothe yourself in other ways. And it needs to smell like balls. I get it. You know. Well, but, I think that there's a big disconnect. I think that a lot of people think that the artist-only room or the artist-only spaces are these nice palatial spaces, but they're no. actually not. You're in the away locker room. <laughs> you know what I mean? You want to be in, like, the room before that. Yeah. The room before that is nice, but the actual the room The actual sucks. room is not great, and it has a sort of olfactory echo <laughs> of balls. And because you're also in that room quite a bit, in mm-hmm. between soundcheck and, you know before you go on, so that's not crazy. But remember also, like, everyone, like, everything you put on a rider, like, some kid has to go get it. Also, I quit drinking. And that was, that riders was a- are just a way to get free, free booze, you know. Probably not free, but... All right, John. Okay. This is the last dab. We call it the last dab because it's tradition around here to put a little extra okay. on the last wing. You don't have to. Holy shit. If you don't want to. I taste lime. Mm. Has anyone ever said there's this weird feeling at the last wing where you're just like, gonzo? Where you're just like, I don't, I actually want it to kill me because you're like, I'm done. And now <laughs> I almost am like, it's like, it's like the food equivalent of like needing to be punched in the face to come. Because you're right. just like, <laughs> <laughs> you become just a sadist by the end of this. Yeah. <laughs> you're just like, dude, I want the whole, like, fuck it. Just screw it. Oh, my God. All right, John Mayer. Well, here we are at the top of Spice Mountain. Just one more obstacle. And like today's meal, it's an obstacle that we're going to take on together. What's that? Somebody hit me with the ukuleles. We are busting out a very special prop for Wing 10. It's a ukulele sound off. It's a song off. Here you go, John. Crew very nervous to get into it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sing you a little song about hot sauce right off the top of the dome. And then if you'd like, you can return the favor with a serenade. And then we'll just send the people off on season five for good. Does that sound good, John? Mm-hmm. All right. So I was actually inspired by one of your pieces when I wrote this mm-hmm. one, okay? Bitter heat. These wings will be the death of me. I don't want to, but I need to. It's Death Wings and an interview at the same damn time. You see, an interview should never hurt this bad. Ate to bomb on chicken wings, and now I'm feeling sad. One drop at a time, that's what the bottle says. Mad Dog says feel alive, so why am I feeling dead? You've been generally warned, that's what the disclaimer says. And now my butthole's on fire, this is an emergency. Hot wings. I tuned mine, by the way. I saw that. When you handed it to me, I tuned it. What did you think of my song, songwriter? I thought it was fantastic. The same ukulele. The same you and me singing merrily. This is you and me eating scarily. Slow pull in. Yeah, you're already doing it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Bang, 
bang, bang, bang, bang, Fantastic. John Mayer. It was heartfelt, it was inspiring. The sweat that you see on my face has nothing to do with the hot sauce. That's a tear going down my cheek, John Mayer. And I am so proud of you from the other side of the table, clearing the chicken wings, and then hitting the people with a song to send us off. And now there's nothing left to do but roll out the red carpet for you, John Mayer. Let the people know what you have going on in your life. If you want to immediately be immune from ridicule from your friends and other deadheads for wearing a Grateful Dead shirt without knowing a single song, you can end it immediately by going to one of the 25 Dead & Company shows this summer and effectively registering your t-shirt by buying a ticket. Thank you very much, everybody. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.